0: I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world.
1: Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Jimmy. I'm the ministry resident here at Redemption Hill. It is my joy that you are sharing the morning with us. If you have a copy of God's Word, meet me in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. So this summer, my wife Sarah and I are celebrating our eight-year anniversary and there's, there's one thing I've learned from my marriage to Sarah. It's that she's usually right. It's, it's just true. And one way in particular, I remember early in our marriage when we'd read the Bible together, we would go through, we would read the text, and we'd observe what's going on, and we'd interpret what the, the Scripture means. And then we'd get to the part about applying it to our lives. And I would really be pressing, well, what's something we should do? What's something we should do because of this Scripture? And Sarah would push back and say, well, sometimes the application is to learn something, that God wants us to know something about himself, not necessarily to do something. Now, it took me a while to figure it out, but over time, I realized that she was right. See, it's easy for us in our culture to rush straight to what are, what's the practical? What, can, what are three steps for me to have a better quiet time? What are five steps for me to have a better prayer life? But the Bible sees us as more holistic than just doers. It sees us not only as doers, but as thinkers and lovers. But Bible cares about impacting what we know, what we love, and what we do. In our passage today in the book of Mark, it's going to be another one of those passages that we've seen the last several weeks of Jesus speaking to these religious leaders, these religious leaders confronting Jesus— and him responding. And his primary rebuke to the religious leaders he speaks to is that they know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. They fail to know. And what we're going to see is that, to kn- that the author, John Mark, who wrote this gospel, wants to see the power of the doctrine of the resurrection and our union with Christ and how it impacts us day in and day out. So, I'm going to pray and then we're going to hop into the word. Lord, we need you today. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. May I speak truly, wisely, and clearly for your name's sake. Pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So, first, I'm going to read the entire text beginning in verse 18, going through verse 27. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, Jesus, a question saying, "Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring." Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So these Sadducees that Jesus is speaking to, that have come up to Jesus, you might be thinking, who are these people? Well, Josh talked last week about two groups of religious leaders. The Pharisees and the Herodians. This group, the Sadducees, is a third one of those groups within the religious leaders of Israel at the time. Now, they were a very conservative group. They held that what we call, as Christians, the Old Testament, that only the Torah, the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, if it wasn't explicitly in those books, they rejected it. And there was a debate in Jewish religion at the time between those who said that on the day of the Lord, when the day the Lord would come to free his people from oppression and save his people from sin, some said that at that time the dead would rise. Those who were part of Israel that had followed God, who had followed Yahweh, would rise from the dead. And others said, no, that wouldn't happen. The Sadducees were on the side that would say that wouldn't happen. Now, it was actually a big debate. The Pharisees, who we talked about last week, were on the other side. They would have supported the resurrection. In fact, one time in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul was arrested and brought to a trial, and he realized the people accusing him were a mixture of both Pharisees and Sadducees, and he used that to his advantage. He said, I'm actually on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. Now, he meant the resurrection of Jesus, but he phrased it in a way that they started fighting within themselves, and it distracted them, and the jailer took them away and bought them extra time. But we see that this was a contentious debate within Israel at the time. And you might be wondering, okay, Jimmy, great. Now, let's talk about, like, what's up with this story? Why does this woman keep marrying her brother-in-law over and over? And this is a practice that was in Israel at the time called Leveret Marriage. And it, it appears all the way back in the book of Genesis. And Moses talks about it explicitly in Deuteronomy 25. So let's, as an example, say there's John and Jane Doe. John and, Meet John and Jane. John and Jane are married, but unfortunately, before they have any children, John passes away, leaving Jane as a widow. Well... That puts Jane in a really precarious position. In that culture, widows would not have much access to income. They would not have much access to social security. So they would often be forced to begging or worse. So would that mean that Jane would be left to the wolves? Well, Let's say in this scenario that John had a brother named Jack. Meet Jack. In this scenario, the honorable thing for Jack to do would be to marry Jane. I know it sounds weird to us for a man to marry his brother's widow. But in that culture, that would do a couple things. First, it would protect Jane. She would have income. She would be provided for and she would have connection to a family. It also would honor his late brother because any children that came from the marriage of Jack and Jane would be attributed to John. In that culture, if you see the Bible, the Bible has tons of genealogies and who you're descended from and who your ancestors are, are a big deal. And historically, historically, Any children from one of these marriages would be attributed to the older brother so that their line would continue. Which is why in verse 19, it says, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And it was intended not only to honor the brother, but also to protect a vulnerable widow. So the Sadducees are asking this question with this, exam- this crazy example because they think they've got Jesus trapped. Have any of you ever heard the question, uh, well, if, if God is all-powerful, can he make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Have, have any of you heard that, those kind of questions? Well, it, it's, it's kind of the same sort of question the Sadducees are asking. They're asking this kind of question. They think that this question renders the resurrection absurd they're saying that if the resurrection was true in their minds this woman had married seven men so they were all rise from the dead if she married to all seven men if so the bible clearly god clearly condemns polygamy so they're saying god would not force this woman to do something that is sinful so in their mind they've got this foolproof argument. This is their defeater question. But look what Jesus says. Look how Jesus responds to them. Jesus said to them, in verse 24, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Which, by the way, these are people who are trained, professional knowers of scripture and the power of God. So this is a, a strong rebuke. It's like telling a Wall Street fi- finance director that he doesn't understand economics. Jesus is, is not, he's not holding back. In verse 25 he says, for when they rise from the dead. Not if. When. And your first point this morning is those who are in Christ will rise again. Jesus is clearly teaching that there is a resurrection from the dead. But as he is the Messiah, he is going to say it's different than the Jewish understanding of resurrection. Of course, if there's a resurrection, there must be a death. There must be something to resurrect from. And that story goes all the way back to the very first man and woman. God created the very first man and woman to love and honor and glorify him, to be in this perfect relationship with him. But the man and woman disobeyed God. They went their own way, not God's way. And that perfect relationship they had with God, where they were, had this perfect intimacy, and there was no shame whatsoever, when they disobeyed, that was broken. Shame entered the story, and you could tell there was something different. Their outlook changed. Instead of being intimate with God, they were afraid of God and hid. That's because they died spiritually in that moment. Because sinful people cannot coexist with a holy God, they died and became slaves to sin in that moment when they disobeyed God. And not only was the punishment limited to spiritual death, look what God says to the man in verse 19 of chapter 3 of Genesis. It says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God is saying that just like the man and woman had died spiritually, they would also die physically. Spiritual death precedes physical death. And for every single one of us, the story is the same. Every single one of us has gone our own way, not God's way. Every single one of us has disobeyed God. Resulting in spiritual death. The Bible makes clear that the wages of sin are death. And that the result of our sin is not only spiritual death, but physical death. And beyond that, we will one day stand before the throne of God and have to account for our lives. And because again, sinful people cannot abide with a holy and perfect God, the just consequence for our sin is eternal punishment and separation from the God of the universe. But even in Genesis, the Lord gives hope. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and uh, the ladies I know looked at this in their Jen Wilkins study recently. says, God said to the serpent that tempted them, this is the punishment that God put on the serpent. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God is saying there would be a descendant of the first man and woman that though the serpent would try to bite the descendant's heel, he would crush the serpent's head. There would be a serpent crusher coming that would deliver the people from this slavery to sin. And generation of sinner followed generation of sinner and followed generation of sinner following the first man and woman until one day God kept his promise. He sent his own son, Jesus, God himself, He lived the perfect life. He was the only one who never sinned against the Father, who never went his own way, not God's way. And yet, even though he never sinned, he bore the penalty for your sins and for mine. On the cross, it didn't look like he was a serpent crusher. In fact, it looked like he was being crushed by the serpent. As we sang that song about see Christ on the cross, struggling to breathe. It appeared that the serpent had crushed him. But beloved, there is good news. Because there today is an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Because Jesus did not remain dead. On the third day, he rose from the dead. And he, as we read in our public reading this morning, and we'll see in a moment, if we put our faith in Christ, there is hope for a resurrection. Just like as in the punishment of the man and woman, spiritual death precedes physical death, in Christ, spiritual resurrection precedes a physical resurrection. Let's look now at John chapter 11, verses 17 to 27. This was our public reading this morning. Jesus had just heard a few days prior that his good friend Lazarus was dying, and his sisters sent messengers to Jesus, who was in another town. But Jesus chose to wait a few days before traveling to see Lazarus. And now he's arriving in the town where Lazarus was. Beginning in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother Look how Jesus transforms her idea of the resurrection. Her idea, there is this distant idea of somehow, some way, the followers of Yahweh will rise again. And Jesus says, No, 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 no. Yet there is a resurrection, but I am the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he yet he shall live. This idea of the resurrection is not just distant and far it is centered in Christ. It is through belief in Christ that we might be resurrected, not only spiritually, but one day, though we will, if the Lord tarries, experience physical death, we will rise again. And I would just encourage you, beloved, even though this seems like such a basic doctrine. I would encourage you to remember the resurrection. Remember the resurrection. It's so easy to say, well, that was Easter. He's risen. He is risen indeed. Kendall will say stuff. I'll respond. Check. Move on with my life. Oh, but we need this doctrine each and every day. We never graduate from the gospel, beloved. We never graduate from the gospel. Look what... The Apostle Paul tells his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-13. through 13, He says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they might obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory." This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. What is true of him is true of us. If we we are united to him, that old, dead, slave to sin self died with him on the cross. And if we are united to him, we have new life. Through his resurrection, we also rose with him. And he gave us his Holy Spirit as a down payment to show that we will rise again. It's so easy to forget. The Bible talks over and over in the Old Testament about how the people of God forget. They come back to God and then they forget and drift away. They come back to God and they forget and drift away. Over and over and over and over But Paul is encouraging. Before we do anything else, before we look on, like what are three things that we can do, beloved? Let us abide in this truth and remember it. Before we do anything else, one way this has really blessed me uh, about five years ago. Some of you might know. Fortunately, Sarah's mom passed away through a long, tragic, difficult battle with brain cancer. And praise the Lord, she was a believer. I remember the morning of the funeral. I was reading my Bible and the Lord brought to mind 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 to 18. And that morning this is what I read. But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. These words were an incredible blessing to me on a difficult day. And as Paul said in verse 18, encourage one another, I was able to encourage Sarah with these words. And it was our hope. It was what we clung to during a really difficult season. But first, we must remember it. Beloved, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Not only does John Mark, the author of this gospel, want us to remember our resurrection hope and see that Jesus taught the resurrection, he also wants to see something about marriage Look at chapter 12, verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, that last part about angels in heaven, they're only, he's only saying angels in heaven aren't married. They're like angels in heaven. Now, it's kind of funny. This is also a second, like sickburn 2.0 that Jesus is giving them here. Because remember, the Sadducees don't believe in angels. So Jesus saying, yeah, you're, you don't know the power of God, you don't know the scriptures, wrong about the resurrection because people who are risen from the dead are unmarried like angels, who, by the way, you're also wrong about. So Jesus is not holding back. This is why we say, till death do we part in wedding vows. Now it might seem like common sense to us because this is really common in our culture, but it's not common sense to everyone the church of latter day saints for example teaches that marriage is eternal but we see jesus directly contradicting that here jesus is making clear that marriage in this life is only for this life but a pointer to something more to something eternal look what paul says in ephesians 5 22 to 32 and I want you to pay a special attention to the relationship between human marriage and Christ's bond with the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as a church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he that might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. Look how deep the Lord's union with his church is. And if we are followers of Jesus, if we put our trust in Jesus, that's talking about us. We are his church. He says Christ is the head of the church. He is our savior. He loved us. He gave himself for us. He cleansed us by the washing of water with the word. He says we're so intimately connected to him, we're almost connected him, like parts of a body are connected to one another. That's how deeply connected we are to him. And verse 32, when he talks about two becoming one flesh, he says that is how intimate the bond is between Christ and his church. God does not base the relationship with his church on human marriage. It's the other way around. Human marriage is built on the template of God's union with his church. And when the two become one flesh, what is true of one becomes true of the other. When Sarah and I got married, I had a lot of student debt. I was an out-of-state student at OSU. And I had, right when I graduated, I started working and paying off debt, but that was going to be a long process. So when we got married, I still had quite a bit of debt. But when we got married, even though Sarah didn't have any student debt, my debt became hers what was true of me became true of her a few years later her grandfather had her late grandfather had left her a certificate of deposit a cd which had matured so that left uh, enough money to pay off the debt and even though it was in her name we could use that to credit to my account so i was able to get out of debt so what was true of her became True of me. The beginning, my debt became hers, and at this moment, her wealth became mine. The same is true of our union with Christ. What is true of him is true of us. If we die with him, if he died, we died. If we, he's risen, we rise. And he says this, and Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. For if we have been united with him in a death, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And that's verse 5. If you want to go over one more, I skipped one. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What is true of him is true of us because he is united to us as a husband is united to his wife. So my encouragement to you, beloved, is to put your hope in your eternal marriage and not an earthly one. And this is whether we're married or not married. For those who are unmarried, maybe that's whether you're hoping to be married or you're content being unmarried or whether you're, you've been married for a long time, all of us are to put our hope not in an earthly marriage but in an eternal marriage. Our eternal union with Christ to keep our eyes on him. For those of us who are unmarried to remember that he loved us and chose us in him before the foundation of the world is washing us with the water of his word. And he is faithful forever. And that you are not a second-class Christian if you are not married. Jesus values you. His church values you. And if you are someone like me who's, who's married, One thing we all know is that we are sinners and our spouses are sinners. And every single one of us has sinned against our spouse and has been sinned against by our spouse. And yet we are called to love even in those difficult moments when we have been sinned against or when we're tired or when the kids just won't sleep. How do we love our spouses as Christ loved us in those moments? Set our eyes on Christ and his love for us. And have faith that he will keep his promise that our spouse and us, he will bring the work he began in us to completion. Day by day, moment by moment, and then fully when we are united with him. Put your hope in your eternal marriage. So we have seen two things, two doctrinal ideas that John Mark wants us to see in this story about Jesus. But I think the core thing he wants us to see is that knowing the scriptures and the power of God means knowing Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That was his key rebuke, that the Sadducees failed to know the scriptures or the power of God. Look what Jesus says in verse 26. He says, And as for the dead being raised... Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So what Jesus does here is he responds to an argument from Moses. Remember that levirate marriage was taught in Deuteronomy, was part of the law that God gave to Moses. He responds to an argument from Moses with another argument from Moses. He fights fire with fire. And he points out that when God first spoke to Moses from the burning bush, he introduces himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The problem being, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for centuries. But he said present tense. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even though they'd been dead for a long time. Jesus is pointing out it would be absurd for the living God to say that he is present tense, the God of dead people. So somehow, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must be alive. There must be some sort of life after death. Now, in all of these stories, when Jesus is confronting these religious leaders, we see different aspects of Jesus' character. And John Mark wants to see see something about Jesus. He wants to say that Jesus is the ultimate interpreter of the Old Testament. And that if we are to know the scriptures, all the scriptures point to him, We see that in Luke 24, that all Scripture points to him. And if we are to know the Scriptures, and we are to know the power of God, we must know Jesus for who he is. John Mark is showing us over and over and over that he is the one, not the religious leaders, not the Pharisees, not the Herodians, not the Sadducees, that he is the one of authority. He's the one qualified to clear out the temple He's the one qualified to have this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He's the one qualified to to interpret the Old Testament and the law of Moses. Why? Because it all points to him. He is God, and it is his word that they're interpreting. John Mark wants us to see clearly. He, He is showing us, hey, this is who Jesus is. He's the one that John pointed to. He is the Messiah that the Old Testament pointed to. The question is, who do you say that he is? John Mark is showing us week after week after week after week who Jesus is. In the next few weeks, we're going to see even more clearly that Jesus identifies himself as the Messiah. The question is, who do you say that he is? This is the most important question that any human could answer. Going back to our story of Jesus and Martha. Remember what Jesus said to Martha in verse 25? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's the question. Do you believe it? Christianity is, a, is more than just believing the right things, but it's never less. Christ is calling us to see himself as he truly is. So my question is, can you answer as Martha did? Are you willing to say, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. The Sadducees missed it. The Pharisees missed it. The Herodians missed it. Martha saw it. Are you willing to say, you are Christ, you are the King, you are the one the scriptures point to, you are the one the universe points to? If you are, just know Jesus is seeking more than just the right answer. He wants more than a trivia answer. As Josh said last week, he wants your whole life. He's calling you to turn away from your disobedience and turn back to him. Turn away from your self-centered tiny kingdom to turn towards his Christ-centered God-honoring kingdom. But he will not leave you as an orphan to do that. He will, he says he will be with us always and he will send his Holy Spirit to comfort and encourage and strengthen us. Is the Lord putting on your heart that you want to take that step of following Jesus today? If so, we'd love to have a conversation with you. Feel free to talk to me or anyone that's been on stage today. We'd love to have a conversation with you about what next steps could look like if you are a follower of Jesus, praise God that you know that he is who he says he is. But do you want to know him more? Do you want to see him more clearly and love him more dearly? Or are you content with a surface level knowledge of God? Yes, it's true that knowledge puffs up and love builds up. But knowledge in the service of Love is beautiful. Kendall knows that Josiah loves dinosaurs and Baisley loves mermaids. Why? Not just to have the right answer, but because he loves them. I know that Sarah loves bird watching and that she's a squasher, not a saver. Sorry, Kendall, the spiders will be alive. She does not kill insects. We are definitely a saving household. But I know that because I love her. Are you content with a surface level knowledge of God? That's what theology is just knowing him so we can love him more. Theology is not an end of itself. That's knowledge puffing up. Oh, but theology in service of love. That is beautiful. Spanish communicates this better than English does. In Spanish, there are two words for to know. Saber means to know the right answers on a test. Trivia. Washington, D.C. is the capital of the United States. That's saber. Conocer is the verb used to know intimately. As in to know someone personally. Personally. And yes, it is important to know God and be in relationship with God. Saber by itself is insufficient. But you can't conoser God. You can't know him intimately if you're not learning more about him. So are you reading your scriptures? Are you seeking Christ-centered resources? Are you willing, when we have ABF in the fall, to try out ABF? We talk more about the learn more about our four pillars. I just encourage you to continue to learn, continue to grow that you not to puff yourself up, but to love Jesus, to see him more clearly, and love him more dearly. Let's close in prayer, Lord. You are so good, you are faithful, and you are alive. You are the resurrection and the life. And I pray that if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, that today would be their day where they take that step and put their faith in you. Not as just a one-time check the box, but as a turning away from their own kingdom and turning towards yours to be an intimate relationship with you forever. And I pray for those of us who are believers. I pray that we would know and remember that your resurrection, know and remember how you are united us was what's true of you is true of us. And that we would seek to know you more and more. And not just rush to doing. But to seek to know you. We pray this in your powerful name. Amen.